Welcome to OAC Vancouver's podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We believe that Jesus is needed and relevant for people in Vancouver today. The message of God's love and promise of wholeness was destined to be experienced within a faith community that worships, studies scripture, and prays together. We warmly welcome you to journey with us towards greater connection, purpose, and peace. We'll be sharing our recorded services and conversations with health and wellness experts. Enjoy. Well, I want to take you back to a December over 100 years ago. The year was 1906, and a young gentleman, 33 years of age, named Reginald Fessender, was a professor already in his 30s and a colleague of Thomas Edison. And he had been tinkering with a generator and a microphone And that year on Christmas Eve, he connected it in such a way that his voice became the first broadcasted over radio waves. Can you imagine those ship operators or sitting in a newspaper office where you're used to just hearing static and coded pulses over the transmission, over the speakers? And suddenly, unexpectedly, unannounced, you hear a human voice. And you recognize the words being read from the Gospel of Luke. It's the Christmas story. And as the passages come to a conclusion, a viola is picked up. And the song played over the radio is, Oh Holy Night. This was a song actually penned by a Parisian poet uh, even 50 years earlier. And it just struck me as so special, uh, I guess divinely appointed, that today uh, Tisha had prepared for us, Oh Holy Night. When we began the broadcast, I invited you to be paying attention during that song to a phrase or a word that leapt out at you, that kind of gripped your heart. And so I'm just going to display the chat messages here for uh, a minute and ask you to share what were those words and phrases from the song, Oh Holy Night, that are powerful to you. Uh, Maybe this is a a Christmas carol that's a favorite, Uh, maybe not, but I'd love to see if there is some phrase from that song that uh, you found particularly moving. I'll give you a, a second to add your comments and see if we can get them shared on our screen here. Uh, for me, if you've been paying attention to the uh, e-newsletter, The title of this message is A Weary World Rejoices. And that to me is a phrase that really jumped out from the lyrics of this carol. Uh, Thank you, Tess, you shared, you know, it's the thrill of hope. Yes, that's the phrase that precedes the weary world rejoices. Just a little bit of a backstory to this song. As I mentioned, it was a, a Parisian poet, uh, Placide Capot, who first 
wrote the lyrics to this song in French, and he did so the Christmas before the French Revolution. So you might imagine his cultural context was one where people were also weary of the prevailing paradigm. They were weary of the the uh, sort of the restrictions that they were living under and they were desperate for change. This poet would later be ostracized by the church and labeled a socialist drunk. And he, though, despite his um, maybe tumultuous relationship with his faith and with the church, he wrote in his memoirs that it was reading the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 and 2 that inspired him to write the lyrics of this song. Uh, Alston, want to thank you for adding, just taking a moment to, to check on those comments there. We have uh, fall on your knees. What a powerful phrase. And this song actually takes us from a call, a petition, uh, a, a commissioning and a challenge. We are called first to fall on our knees. And by the end of it, we are called to stand up, to rise up in hope. It is such a, a powerful transition and transformation and really captures our spiritual journey in a nutshell. Even though this um, carol was penned, you know, closing on 200 years ago, it definitely resonates uh, with us today. You know, the fact that a young teenage girl uh, is chooses this song in 2020 uh, to sing for church, I think it's a powerful statement of how uh, relevant and resilient this message is that we need. It is based on this message of hope. And I think in 2020, we are certainly a weary world. We can look back to March when kind of the, the news of this pandemic was rising, when finally in British Columbia, we were placed under restrictions and a state of emergency was called. I recall a lot of those discussions saying, you know, sure, this is a couple weeks lockdown, but then we're going to be on top of it. You know, maybe our summer is going to look differently. But we had a lot of confidence and faith in our, in our medical professionals and experts that this would soon be passed. You know, this is, we were a hundred years post the 1918 pandemic, and for sure we thought science and uh, governments had, had built upon history and we would weather this storm much more successfully than our ancestors of the past. Here we are, it's nine, 10 months into this pandemic and I would say a lot of you who I talk to are weary of the restrictions. You are weary of the constraints, the impact, whether it has been a lost job, lost uh, connection with family, lost opportunities, uh, impacts to school and education, 
impacts to dreams and important life events that had to be celebrated or honored and recognized in kind of incomplete ways. We are a world that is weary in 2020, weary of this pandemic. And to be honest, uh, you know, this pandemic is not uh, kind of the starting point or not the trigger for the weariness that I feel. I started 2020 in a weary place. I started uh, the year already feeling defeated and deflated, confused, uh, uncertain about my future. Some of you don't know that, you know, I was really praying at that time for, you know, where God would lead me. And I really was convinced that it would not be at OAC. <laughs> but here we are. God has uh, authored a, a story for each of us. And if we surrender and we are open to his guidance, he takes us to places we wouldn't expect. And he uh, opens doors and closes doors that we can't always anticipate. So I find myself uh, really resonating with this song, needing the message of this song as we come to a close this year, because I still feel weary <clears throat> and I long to tap into that thrill of hope. My prayer, it seems for, for a couple years now, has been the prayer of David that says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. There are days where it feels like I have been holding down two full-time jobs, one as a pastor of a very dynamic, transient urban church, and one as the manager of a household. And it seems like I just don't have enough energy or capacity to do anything well. And yet, uh, in faith, walking by faith and not by sight, you know, I show up on Sabbath mornings, even if I am sleep deprived, even if I'm feeling dull and numb inside, because I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to be a filter, to be the final editor of uh, my message. I believe that sometimes the greatest offering we have is just uh, showing up and giving God all we are. And I have seen time and time again that his strength is perfected. It's revealed as sufficient in my greatest moments of weakness or depletion. So I know that this is a season, this is a Christmas in which we all need that thrill of hope. If you do a word study on, on that adjective of thrill. A thrill means to, to have a piercing emotion, to have a piercing change or experience. We think about thrill rides and it's those unexpected moments, those dips and those turns and the plunge into darkness or uh, the surprise blast or sound that creates a thrill ride. It's an interruption. So as we think about how can a weary world rejoice, we, we reflect on that preceding phrase, the thrill of hope. 
is what allows a weary world to rejoice. There is a hope that jars us out of the darkness, out of the dullness, out of the fatigue. There is a hope that reinstates a will to live amidst the desire to die. There is a hope that pierces a hope as a chance at love, even in the moments where you feel uh, numb and, and um, dull and incapable of empathy. I would like to um, share with you a short uh, word study by, by a resource I absolutely love shared before the Bible Project, who's gonna take you through a, a dive into the biblical terms for hope, and then um, I'll meet you back here in the chapel. So have a listen with me. So let's say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. You might be giddy or excited or maybe unsure, but most of us know that experience. We call it hope. It's a state of anticipation and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the flood waters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavas for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kava and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. So in biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, at this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kavah for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find this same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kavah for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sins. Biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see in any situation how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better but you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea, he lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires and he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kavah for? You are my yachal. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated the similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope. 
and they use the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The Apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope, that people can be reborn, to become new and different kinds of humans. More than once, the Apostle Paul says the good news about Jesus announces the elpis of glory. In both cases, this elpis is based on a person, the risen Jesus, who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The Apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is. But biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about. As we can see from the video, biblical hope is much deeper, much more powerful than how we typically use the term like wish. You know, we say, well, I hope I get a close parking spot. I hope the lines aren't too long. We express terms colloquially at hope as, as more like a wish, but Biblical hope is really about grounding our souls. Scripture says hope is an anchor for the soul. And I think that is such an appropriate metaphor because in the storms of life, whether it is a global pandemic, whether it is a toxic relationship, whether it is an unexpected diagnosis, we are tossed by factors and variables in life that are just outside of our control. And really, if we had control, there would be no need for hope. Hope expresses just enough confidence that good is coming, that change will happen. It's just enough confidence. It's not entire confidence or there would be no room for hope. So hope speaks to the fact that we are in the tension of doubt and uncertainty, and yet we look to the past and we remember how faithful God has been. Corinthians, uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13 concludes with this wisdom. In the end, only three things will remain, faith, hope, and love. Faith speaks to our understanding of, of the past, and love is a present condition. And hope really speaks about being future-focused and having holding that expectation of what was and what is and what is to come. I want to um, reflect with you on Scripture again. We're going to Luke uh, chapter 2. We're going to stay there as that's the inspiration from our Christmas carol this morning. And Luke chapter 2 
verse 22, we are given the events that occurred just after Jesus' birth, about a month uh, past his birth. In Luke chapter 22, sorry, chapter 2, verse 22, it says, After Mary had observed the ceremonial days of her postpartum purification as required by Mosaic law, she and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. They were fulfilling a requirement um, that you can read about in Leviticus chapter 5 that says the firstborn Israelite male, or your translation might read the first male that opens the womb, will be dedicated to the eternal one as holy. They offered as a sacrifice two turtle doves. This is an indication that the wise men, which we usually like to place in our nativity scenes, actually didn't appear until after the first month of Jesus' birth, because Jesus would have been circumcised at day, day eight, uh, at eight days old, and Mary's postpartum purification would have lasted about 40 days. And then they've traveled from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, and their offering that is noted indicates that they are are still poor. They haven't received the wealth of gifts that the wise men brought. Out of, um, in their poverty, there was provision for sort of the, the cheapest offering that could be brought was two pigeons. And we know living in an urban place, how common uh, pigeons can be. They can be acquired by people who have very little or no means. And so we see Joseph and Mary presenting an offering of poor parents as they bring Jesus to dedicate him. Now, while fulfilling these sacred obligations, in verse 25, we read on that they encountered a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was a just and righteous man, anticipating the liberation of Israel from her troubles. He was a man in touch with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not die before he laid eyes on the Lord's anointed one. The Spirit had led him to the temple that day, and there he saw the child Jesus in the arms of his parents, fulfilling their sacred obligation. Simeon took Jesus into his arms and blessed God. Now, Lord and King, you can let me, your humble servant, die in peace. You promised, you promised me that I would see with my own eyes what I am seeing now, your freedom. Raised up in the presence of all people, here is the light who reveals your message to all nations. Here is the shining glory of your covenant people. His father and mother were stunned to hear Simeon say these things, and he went on to bless them both. And to Mary in particular, he gave this prediction. Listen, this child will make Israel rise and fall. He will be a significant person who many oppose. In the end, he will lay bare the secret thoughts of many hearts, and a sword will pierce your own soul, Mary. What kind of a, a blessing to the parents is this? He is predicting 
that Jesus will be a civil disruptor and a religious disruption. He will change the world. Nothing will be the same. And yet the light of his revelation will expose some of the greatest darkness that was prevailing. And Mary, blessed Mary, mother of Jesus, would have a, her own heart pierced. You know, we, we often reflect on Mary, and we started uh, the month, actually, this Advent month, reflecting on Mary as being a woman who is blessed. She herself sings a song of praise, uh, acknowledging how God has blessed her by giving her the honor to bear his son. And this is, I think, kind of a comforting truth. This is a reality check that when God calls us blessed, when God makes us blessed, it is not blessed by our Western expectations or standards. It's not blessing defined by our preferences, wants, and desires. Often God's blessed people face a lot of hardship, face a lot of struggle, face heartache and pain. So where is this blessing coming from? And again, I think we've been echoing it all morning. Our weary world, our broken hearts, can rejoice because there is a thrill of hope. Verse 36 continues the story. At that moment, an elderly woman named Anna steps forward. Anna was a prophetess, and she had been married for seven years before her husband died. A widow, now at her current age, well into her 80s, she was deeply devoted to the Lord, constantly in the temple, fasting and praying, and she approached Mary and Joseph, and baby Jesus, and began speaking thanks to God as she continued spreading the word about Jesus to all who shared her hope of rescue. Here we have two senior citizens, two senior members of the faith community who have not only been waiting themselves for decades for liberation, for freedom, for a promise to be fulfilled, but they carried on their shoulders the weight, the knowledge, the understanding that generations have waited for this promise to be fulfilled. And the people of Israel had gone centuries without, you know, a, a major prophet giving any indication that, that the prophecies of old, that these promises to, to Abraham, to Jacob, to David were coming true, were, were being fulfilled. They were hanging on um, century after century, generation after generation. And our Jewish friends today still hold out hope that the Messiah is coming. We as Adventists still hold on to hope that he is coming again. So while we think of you know, expect that as God's people, we will be blessed. I think of this scripture that, that promises, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
And so often I used to hear that verse and maybe it's how it was presented or maybe it is again that I'm a product of a, a Western consumerist entitled culture, but I would read that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I'd kind of leave off the last two words, who strengthens me. I was just like, I can do all things through Christ. That's the mantra. And it kind of is this prosperity uh, gospel illusion that gets championed. I can just do all things through Christ, you know, just uh, set your mind to it and attain it. You know, manifest your own um, destiny by just believing it. You say it enough, you pray it enough, it'll happen. And yet, as we unpack that scripture deeper, we cannot leave out, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We don't need to be strengthened when we're feeling, uh, you know, victorious, when success is befalling us, when uh, things are going well. We don't need to be strengthened uh, as champions. We need Christ's strength when we feel weary. We need Christ's strength when we are holding doubt and tension. We need Christ's strength when our patience is wearing so thin. We need Christ's strength when we are sleep deprived and on edge and ungraceful and bitter and resentful and harboring hate. These are the moments where we can do all things because Christ strengthens us. What if we start to see that verse as we can do all things to encompass the negative, to encompass the hard? What if we can see that verse as I can suffer well through Christ who gives me the strength. I can grieve well because Christ strengthens me. I can even die well because of Jesus' grace and the promise of return of the hope of an eternal reunion that gives me the strength to endure, that gives me a supernatural peace, that gives me the patience to persist. I've been personally uh, inspired by a colleague of mine who, when I worked at Deer Lake School, she was uh, a middle school teacher. And earlier this year, um, she lost her husband quite tragically. He was only 49. He was uh, part of our education department in the BC Adventist Conference. And this past week would have been his 50th birthday. And I've been keeping her in prayer and following how she has shared about her journey through grief and journey through loss. Uh, a funeral that couldn't really take place in how it should have to offer complete closure. And I, I watch what she shares and she posts on social media. And I think here is a picture of somebody so grounded in their faith, so strengthened by their late husband's faith, that they can grieve well. It is possible to suffer well by the strength that Jesus provides. It is possible to endure well. It is possible 
that 2021 might take you into even worse places than 2020 found you. And I want your soul to be anchored in hope. I don't want to see anyone uh, distraught or destroyed by the storms that the enemy is going to stir up around us. This year, if there is any bright spot to be found, may it be found in your own personal resolution, in your own open heart to the Holy Spirit to convict your being of the truth that is presented in Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our Good Shepherd, as our best friend, and as King of this universe, as Lord of Lords. Thank you for listening to OAC Vancouver's podcast. Learn more at oacvancouver.ca. If you're in Vancouver, join us for worship Saturdays at 11 a.m. at 5350 Bailey Street. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. God bless you and have a wonderful day.